Will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We'll read verses 30 to 41. It'll be hard to prove, but it's possible, even arguable, that Psalm 46 may be in the background. At least there's an echo of Psalm 46 and what Jesus is doing in uh, this important event in his earthly ministry. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us now to see Christ in the scriptures, to hear your word, to believe everything that you teach us in Psalm 46 and uh, other passages. And we ask that you would help us to obey everything that you command us through your word tonight. So we are listening not to the words of men, but to the very word of Christ. We pray that everything that's said in this pulpit tonight would be according to your word and faithful to it for the upbuilding of your people and the salvation of the lost. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea Obey him. Amen. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. 
You may be seated. If you go to the Visitor's Plaza of the United Nations in New York City, you will see there a bronze sculpture of a 45 caliber revolver where the end of the barrel has been tied in a knot. It's called the Knotted Gun, it's the name of the sculpture, and it's intended there to express the sort of universal hope of mankind for peace. No more fighting, no more killing, no more destruction. Interestingly, um, the original sculpture was actually created in memory of John Lennon after he was shot and killed in 1980. Uh, John Lennon is famous, of course, for the song Imagine, which also expresses that dream of world peace. The interesting thing, though, is in that song, if you kind of run back a loop in your head, what, what's the real problem with the world in that song? The real source of conflict and war and violence, according to John Lennon, is, at least in part, religion. It's belief in God and heaven and hell. Remember, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. And imagine all the people living for today. And that's supposedly, for him, the, the pathway to peace. Now, Psalm 46 also is a song about peace, in part. Uh, but unlike John Lennon's version, it's, this is not merely a dream. It's not merely an empty, sentimental thing to imagine. And this song, um, importantly, does not just wish away the conflict and the struggle of life in a broken world. It's very honest about it. It's not just kind of wistfully longing for something to be different uh, or pinning its hopes on people to bring about peace on earth, the same people who caused the problems to begin with, to bring about peace on earth just through somehow changing their mindset and then maybe we can finally get there together. Psalm 46 deals very honestly with the present and it sets before God's people a hope for the future that actually can be trusted, that actually can be relied on, because it is outside themselves. It's outside themselves. I'm going to give you three headings for the three sections of this psalm, and then we'll start exploring the details. So number one will be confidence through catastrophe, verses 1 through 3. Number two will be power through presence, verses 4 through 7. And then number three, peace through victory verses 8 through 11. Confidence through catastrophe, power through presence, and peace through victory. The psalm begins with, God is our refuge and strength. That's a very familiar first line, about as familiar as they come. But let's think about this in a fresh way for a minute. Um, Notice how those two words, refuge and strength, kind of complement one another. This is something uh, Derek Kidner pointed out that was very helpful to me. So a refuge is what? A refuge is a place you go into for safety, right? You get in it. It surrounds you and protects you from without. Strength, we tend to think of something within. The, the power 
to endure, to bear up under pressure, to push through resistance. So refuge and strength. The refuge on the outside, the strength on the inside pressing forward. The Lord is both of those things for his people. God is our refuge and our strength. The second half of the verse complements this. Remember how Hebrew poetry rhymes not with sounds, like in English, but with ideas. And so the second verse, second line of verse 1 is expanding on the first line. They, they complement each other. Uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And that word present is kind of interesting. It doesn't just mean that God happens to be there, kind of like the air in this room. It's just there. Um, that's not what this means. The, the, the word present is a form of the Hebrew word for find. One translation says, God is a helper who is always found in times of trouble. In Second Chronicles 15, a prophet tells the king, if you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. If you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. As Paul tells the people of Athens, he is not far from each one of us. He is there to be found. Not to be unknown, but to be known and embraced, loved and served, submitted to, and to be a refuge and strength for his people. That needs to be our mindset. All the time, every waking moment, we are living in God's presence, Coram Deo, before the face of God. But it's not just that he's there, and it's not only merely that he's there watching. This is especially important and precious for us in what the psalmist calls trouble or distress, when those sorrows like sea billows roll, right? Because then God is very present for us. Then we will find him when we seek him, because he is there to help us. He is there to act. He is there to be there for us. You'll find him to be a reliable and trustworthy place of refuge and source of strength. That's what you will find God to be in those times of trouble. Okay, so we could ask, well, if that's true, um, this nearness of God as our refuge and strength, well, then how should we live? Uh, verse 2 begins with the word, therefore, and that means that it's, it's, it's kind of giving us the practical application in verse 2 of the doctrine that's taught in verse 1. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And so this is the imagery of this massive catastrophe, this cataclysmic natural disaster, uh, where the places on earth that we think of as the most permanent, just big, huge, impossible to move, they're being moved out of their place, they're being thrown into the sea. Imagine if Mount Everest got uprooted and tossed into the Indian Ocean. What a, an upheaval that would be for really the whole earth worldwide, ultimately, um, something that on that scale. We can think back here to creation. On the third day of creation, um, remember how God separated the dry land from the waters, Now it's, it's as though the image is of the world being unmade. The land and the waters sliding back into one another. Everything is coming to pieces. As the poet W.B. W. Yeats put it, things fall apart. 
the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the earth, and the waters are roaring and foaming, and they're causing the mountains to tremble at the swell of the sea. So what's the response of faith in the midst of that chaos and and catastrophe? It's It's not denying that it's there, right? It's not saying, oh, just think more pleasant thoughts. Just tell yourself happier things and don't think those negative things about the world and the mountains being tossed. No, it's in the midst of that chaos and catastrophe. We will not fear. That is the response of faith. And it's not because we're in denial. It's not because we're putting our heads in the sand. And it's also, on the other hand, not because we're just being reckless and um, uh, acting in spite of the danger in a foolhardy kind of way. No, the reason that we will not fear is that we have a refuge. We have a place of safety and strength in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of what feels like the world falling apart and perhaps even our own lives coming to pieces around us. Um, You may have seen a a pretty famous series of photographs by Jean Guichard of La Jument Lighthouse off the coast of France. There was an unusually fierce storm in 1989 that had whipped up these just massive waves uh, bigger than usual, that were crashing against this lighthouse. It's very exposed on the, on the far side of an island um, off the coast of France. And in these photos, you see a uh, particularly massive wave kind of wrapping around the lighthouse as it, as it breaks onto the lighthouse, and it's running up the windward side. Um, and then you, you look cl- more closely. It's, this, it's, it's a pretty big um, shot, but then you look clo- more closely, and there's this little tiny figure standing in the doorway of the lighthouse, the entrance at the bottom. It's the lighthouse keeper. And there's this great wave about to crash around, and you think, surely he's going to be swept away. Um, But he wasn't. Um, This is a real person, of course, that took the picture of, and that lighthouse keeper did survive. And why? It was because he had a refuge that could withstand the very worst that the churning waves could muster to throw against that structure and so that it could remain unmoved amid all of that madness of the sea. Now, before we go on to the next section, I want to take special note of a couple of words for you to remember because we're going to come back to them. We'll see them again later in the psalm, not in English, but in Hebrew, and I'll point out where later. Um, there are these, these verbal connections where the poetry is going to tie together the opening imagery of the sea and the mountains with the description next of the nations and the kingdoms. So from verse 2, remember the word moved, though the mountains be moved. And then in verse 3, remember the word roar, though its waters roar. Okay, so hold that thought. Um, let's go on to verse 4 now. So in verse 4, the... The water imagery continues, but now it's in a a very different mode, right? Still water, a very different kind of water. There is a river. We've left the raging ocean behind, and now there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So these are no longer the waters of of chaos and catastrophe. These are now the waters of refreshment. They're life-giving waters. They're still powerful. They're still a force to be reckoned with. I mean, rivers are very powerful things themselves. Um, 
but this is a river that brings people joy. And um, some of you have, uh, most of you have probably heard me go through this because it's something I get kind of excited about. But um, I'm going to tell you again, just to, to reflect on how this imagery of a river really runs through, in a sense, the entire Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It starts in Eden, with Genesis chapter 2. Remember how a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. You think, okay, there was a river in Eden. Well, you look ahead to Isaiah 41, for example. It's looking towards the last days when the Lord says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. The wilderness being transformed into an Eden-like place by these rivers opening on the heights. And then you come even more clearly to uh, Ezekiel, where he has this vision of the ideal temple, and out of it is flowing a stream of water. And, and gradually, as it moves farther and farther from the temple, it becomes first ankle-deep, and then it becomes knee-deep, and then it becomes waist-deep, and then deep enough to swim in. And the angels tell him that this river, when it, when it comes to the sea... It's going to make the waters of the sea fresh. And it says, everything will live where the river goes. Isn't that beautiful? Everything will live where the river goes. And on its banks, it says, will grow trees bearing fruit for food and leaves for healing. So then, you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, where John says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, of the new Jerusalem, representing the new heavens and the new earth in the last day. And, and this river has the tree of life growing on either side, John says again, echoing Ezekiel. It says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, so you can see this. All the way Genesis to Revelation, there's this kind of the same river running through the whole Bible. But actually, I I skipped all the way to Revelation. That's actually not the first place in the New Testament that the river comes up. In John 7, I saved the best perhaps for last. In John 7, Jesus stands up and cries out to the crowds on that day, If anyone thirsts, let him come where to drink. Let him come to me and drink. And if you do that, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, what's going to happen? Out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Thinking again of Ezekiel, it's the same river now as it was then. It's just deeper and wider than ever before because it's been flowing for longer. It's more fully revealed to us now in Christ and through the Holy Spirit as that river is now welling up eternal life in our hearts as Christ has caused it to spring forth, this river that makes glad the city of God. Verse 5 goes on, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. And God will help her when morning dawns. In other words, um, you could ask, where does Israel's security and strength come from? And the answer is it comes from having God with them. And this is why the second point is called power through presence. And we could think about the alternative. Um, 
So God's power is not a, a thing, like, like a substance that he sends to us by like heavenly UPS and we get this box and we open it up and we, we drink this potion that God has sent to us and now we have power from God. No, when the Bible talks about the power that we have from God, it's the, the power is God himself who is with us, who is among us, who is within us, indwelling us through his spirit. God, in other words, will not merely send us help from a distance, but he will help us in person, right there with us. Of course, that's proven in a special way through the incarnation. God actually entering into this creation by taking on a human nature. And it's also proven even further, isn't it? At Pentecost, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And how is he with us? Well, he's with us by his spirit as he is sent his spirit to live in the church and dwell among us forever. Power through the presence of God, not merely as something we get from God. That power through presence is considered from another angle in the next couple of verses. And again, I'd like you to look carefully at the parallelism here. Um, Remember, Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas and sometimes does that through comparison. So line one is like line two. Sometimes there's an escalation, uh, sort of line one and even more line two. Um, other times, the rhyming ideas, though, form a contrast. They're being contrasted with one another. Line one, yes, but line two. I think there's something like that going on here in verse six when says, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. I told you uh, earlier to remember those two words from verses 2 and 3, moved and roar. So those two English words don't appear here, but the same Hebrew words appear um, in verse 6. Uh, so the waters roar, the nations roar. Um, and so when it, when it says the nations rage, it's the same as the word for roar. The nations actually are roaring like the waters in verse 4. And then similarly, when the, it says the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, in verse 6, it's the kingdoms that are moved. The word for moved and the word for totter. Again, are the same Hebrew word. And so the kingdoms are tottering like those mountains tottering and falling into the heart of the sea. And so to begin with, what that means that verse 6 is, is, first of all, it's acknowledging that there is real chaos and danger and catastrophe in the world, not just in terms of natural disasters, which is the poetic imagery from verses 1 through 3, but this is really the, the deeper point of the psalm. It's in the affairs of nations. What people do can cause it to feel like the world is coming to pieces and falling apart. Uh, the geopolitical world, in particular, is a very turbulent place, and we can feel that instability. We can, in fact, be gripped by fear and anxiety and anger, about uh, all of the, the world events that we see playing out around us. And that fear is not completely unfounded. It's the mountains being tottering and being cast into the heart of the sea. It's the nations raging, roaring, and causing these great upheavals around the world. That's real. But what gives perspective here is the second line. It says, Yes, when the nations rage, it can make the kingdoms totter, sure. Huge global forces, amazing power. 
But compare what happens when the Lord utters his voice. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The power of God, of God's voice, completely outstrips any power that's to be found within the world. And, And not just by a little bit, it's by infinite orders of magnitude. The one who made the world has the power to unmake it by the same world that put it together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. And that means that he can upend the universe by the world of his power if he chooses to do so. And you might think, well, that's kind of a terrifying thought. But how does verse 7 apply it? Saying, that's our God. That's the Lord of hosts who is with us. The God of Jacob, who is our fortress. He's a mighty fortress, a bulwark, never failing. He's our helper who, amid all that flood of mortal ills, is prevailing. And yes, sure, our our ancient foe still seeks to work us well. And yes, sure, his craft and power are great. And he is armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal... And yes, it's true. If we, in our own strength, were to confide, all of our striving that we could muster would be losing. But it's not. We're not losing. Why? Because the Lord of hosts is with us. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Lord Sabaoth means Lord of hosts. So when you sing Mighty Fortress, remember, Lord Sabaoth, that's, that's Lord of hosts. Lord of armies, the heavenly armies the angels and the armies of his people, from age to age the same. And he will win the battle. It cannot end any other way. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. Now, verse uh, 8, all the way to the end, extends this imagery of the, particularly the destructive force of God's voice, but brought to bear for the salvation of his people and the construction of his kingdom. And we're calling this uh, last point, peace through victory. In uh, September of 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain uh, came back from Munich and celebrated in London the uh, now infamous Munich agreement that he had just struck with Hitler with um, the catchphrase, peace for our time. And everybody knows that Hitler invaded Poland in September of 1939. It's a very short-lived peace. It was a false peace, what Jeremiah might describe as saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You see, the kind of peace that people really long for is what was famously articulated by Lincoln in his second inaugural when he, he called it a just and lasting peace a just and lasting peace. But a, a just and lasting peace is very hard to achieve. It's the aftermath of that speech goes on to indicate in history. 
And a just and lasting peace cannot be achieved superficially, and it can't be achieved just through saying it and expecting that will make it so. And it can't be achieved through Band-Aid solutions or ignoring hard realities or sentimentally wishing and dreaming and imagining that things were different. That knotted gun statue is absolutely mocked every day by conflict after conflict all around the world that no power in this world is ever going to be able to bring to an end. The just and lasting peace that the Lord is promising to bring is the peace that comes through victory. A peace that comes through his victory, the victory of good over evil, of life over death, of holiness over corruption, of grace over sin, and of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of his enemies once and for all in the second coming. And that, that is good news for the people of God. Although you can see here, it's not good news for everybody without exception. Come, behold the works of the Lord. And you think, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about the works of the Lord. We're going to talk about rainbows and and butterflies and all of the wonderful parts of nature that we all love so much. And those are wonderful. We can talk about the wonderful works of the Lord. But that's not the kinds of works that this psalm is talking about. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Desolations are the work of the Lord in this case that we're zooming in on this facet of his work. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, yes, but how does he do it? How does he make those wars to cease? He does it by breaking the bow and shattering the spear. And uh, Charles Spurgeon reflects here on all of the huge, mind-boggling empires that were the the big global um, players on the world stage in the ancient Near East during Old Testament times. Think about Assyria and Babylon and the Philistines and Egypt and so on. But, but what has become of them now? At least in terms of their great imperial power, they are just in the history books. They're just blown away by time. Remember, we've, I think we've talked before about that statue of Pharaoh Ozymandias and the famous poem by Shelley, where on the pedestal of the broken-down statue that he finds in Egypt, these words appear... My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But he says nothing besides that pedestal remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, alone in level sand stretch far away. I love that poem. That's what the psalm is reflecting on. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. As Mary would say one day, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And what else has he done? He has exalted those of humble estate. That's what the Lord does. That's who he is. It's important then that we read verse 10 in light of verses 8 and 9. And I think, unfortunately, verse 10 is often quoted out of context in a, in a kind of sentimental way that 
I think arguably doesn't really match what the, what the psalmist is meaning here. As though when it says, be still, it just means, you know, kind of just close your eyes and take a deep breath, and drink a cup of coffee, relax. Relax because God's in control. And there, there obviously there's something to that. There's something to letting go of our gripping fears and uh, being anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, letting our requests be made known to God. And there is something about resting in God. And in fact, that would be an appropriate application in the long run of what's being said here. But when this says, be still and know that I am God, that's not the kind of stillness that it's talking about. Verse 10 is talking, is talking about a stillness that comes from a proper view of the majesty of God and his overwhelming power that brings about the desolations of nations, breaking and shattering and burning their weapons and stopping us in our tracks. As the stillness of Job when he says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He's going to put his hand over his mouth. Be silent before the God who brings desolations. It's much more along the lines, as one writer points out, of Jesus looking out upon the churning sea from the boat that he was in, swept by the wind and uttering his voice, his sovereign, almighty, majestic voice, the voice that upholds the earth and can melt the earth, either one. And he says, peace, be still to the wind and the waves. And the winds and the waves are still at the voice of Jesus. Be still and know that I am God, the Lord is saying. God's enemies must be still when they hear that voice. And God's people must be still when we really come to terms with who he is. What has been described often as the godness of God. That he is God and we are not. There's that fundamental difference. Jonathan Edwards reflects on this. He says, this teaches us that we must be still as to words, not speaking against, for example, God's providence in our lives, not trying to justify ourselves, not speaking arrogantly. It's one way to be still before his godhood sovereignty. We must be still also in our actions, Edward says, not opposing God in what we do. And we must be still, he says, as to the inward frame of our hearts, cultivating a calm and quiet submission of soul to the sovereign pleasure of God, whatever it may be. That's what it means to be still and know that he is God and he will be exalted among the nations and in the whole earth. After all, it's the great hope that Paul sets before us in Philippians 2, isn't it? That one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And really, every verse of this psalm really finds its full meaning in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who calmed by his word, those roaring and foaming waters in the boat. Jesus, who gives that water of life, that river that makes God's people glad as it flows from your heart because the Spirit of Christ 
lives in you. And of course, it's Jesus who will one day judge the world and who will bring about a final, truly just and lasting peace that comes through his final victory and the resulting destruction once and for all of every force of evil that currently stands against him and that currently plagues his people. But as we go from, to, go from here tonight, let's remember that that's not just our hope for the distant future. It's our hope for the present, that the Christ that this psalm describes is our King and our Savior and our God today. And so when you feel that things are falling apart, that the world is coming to pieces, that your world is coming to pieces and being unmade as your life is in upheaval and you cannot find your footing, you feel like you're going to be swept off to who knows where. This is where you go to find refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. You will find that refuge and strength because, why? Because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, you are our refuge and our strength. As we turn to you tonight, we trust that we will find you. And our God, when the earth feels like it's giving way and the mountains feel like they're being moved into the heart of the sea as the nations rage and the kingdoms are tottering, we ask that you would strengthen our faith to see clearly that what your word says is true, that you are with us, that you are our fortress. Lord, make us glad with the river of the waters of life that come through Christ by your spirit and fill our hearts with that hope and confidence of the final victory of the Lord Jesus when he comes again. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.